Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, it's the second last Sunday of the church year. Soon we will begin another one and the crisp blues of Advent will find their way into our chancel upon our altar and pulpit and lectern. As one church year draws to a close, we hear lessons that speak of the end times, of the second coming of our Lord and Savior. And soon enough, we will recall His first coming as the babe of Bethlehem, focused all the while on knowing that through His cross and His resurrection, we are assured that His second coming does not need to be something that is dreaded by believers, but rather embraced and longed for. The Jews, however, still wait on the first coming of the Messiah. Having obstinately rejected the incarnation of Christ in the person of Jesus, they continue to hope for and to seek Him, desiring the restoration of the kingdom of David in an earthly sense and the rebuilding of the temple of which Jesus spoke in today's Gospel lesson. You see, Jesus' prophecy that one stone would not be left upon another was fulfilled in the temple's destruction by the Romans in A.D. 70. It was retribution against the Jews for having had one too many uprisings against their oppressors. And with that destruction, Israel would find that they were without a physical focal point for their ethnic and cultural and political and religious heritage. And although many Christians, especially in America, confuse the modern nation-state of Israel with the biblical one, They are worlds apart, both temporally and spiritually. We cannot overestimate the importance of Jerusalem's temple to the Jews of Jesus' time. The Greeks were known far and wide as being thinkers and creators. They could boast as having great philosophers and scientists, mathematicians and playwrights. And the Romans, well, they were known as the doers. They springboard off the Greek discoveries and they added elements of knowledge from all of their conquered lands. They could brag of their legions, of their wonderful complex legal system, and of their great engineering feats. But the Jews, meanwhile, they got their sense of identity and their purpose from the temple. For them, that temple was a tangible sign of their favored status as God's chosen people. It was the one place in the world that God had placed His name and He had promised to be. And so it had stood the test of time. Although the first temple built by Solomon had been destroyed by the Babylonians, this second temple had stood for 500 years now and it was still being rebuilt and still being renovated and expanded under Herod. It had seen vast empires come and go. The Persians the Medes, Alexander the Great, and more. There was every reason for them to believe that this temple would outlast the Romans too. Its massive stones, some of which weighed more than 40 tons, they helped create the impression of durability. And that was a comforting thought to these Jews. It gave them a sense of security, of importance, and mostly of permanence. And it was believed by them that when the Christ came, He would rule from Jerusalem. So to the Jews, this temple was the solid center of their entire world. 
We heard today that even Jesus' disciples were caught up in the grandeur of the place. You can imagine how shocked and horrified they must have been when he told them that one stone would not be left upon another. This was unthinkable. It shook them to the very core of themselves. They were so taken aback that a bit later when four of them gathered with Jesus on the Mount of Olives to gaze across that valley toward the temple, they asked him privately to elaborate upon his words. Still confused by what he had said, they implored him, when will these things happen? And what will tip us off that they are about to take place? Well, what Jesus said next would have been even more upsetting to them. The future that he described was anything but what they would have wanted or would have expected. They had imagined a world of peace and prosperity under the Messiah. There would be no more wars, no human conflict at all, no crime. The earth itself would be freed from its curse. No storms, no droughts, no famines, no epidemics. Destructive insects and weeds and thorns would no longer interfere with the growing of food and there would be plenty for all. And those closest to the Messiah, thinking that it was the disciples themselves, of course, they thought they would be up near the top. They, more than anyone, believed that they would be enjoying the blessings of this kingdom. At least, that's what they were expecting. But everything Jesus tells them that day is exactly the opposite. He describes confusion, mayhem, ongoing conflicts and controversies, false messiahs arising and leading people astray. And instead of peace and prosperity, he speaks of war and bloodshed, of famine and natural disaster. And worst of all, instead of being in positions of power and honor, Jesus tells the disciples they they will be rejected. They'll be beaten and hated and put to death for their witness to Him. Even their own family members would become enemies. This was a complete reversal. It was a worldview turned upside down. The disciples were expecting smooth and easy sailing with clear skies and calm seas. Instead, Jesus told them, you're heading into a hurricane. But He also told them to hold firmly to the faith. Keep what I've taught you. Trust and hope and believe in me. For he who endures to the end will be saved. Now with the hindsight of history and the record of the Scriptures, we know that what Jesus prophesied that day has indeed come true. Instead of the nations coming to Jerusalem though, Christ has sent His Gospel out to the nations through those apostles. Wherever they spread the good news of Jesus, Some people received it with joy, and there the Christian church took root and grew. It was there, in all of those congregations scattered around the world, including our own, and not in the Jerusalem temple that exists no more, that the Lord God has made His dwelling with men. But not everyone heard that message with joy. Far more have opposed it, and often with violence. The early Christians suffered terrible persecutions, They were beaten, imprisoned, exiled. Some were crucified. Others faced lions or even more unspeakable horrors from those that wanted to see this new faith stamped out. That was just what the church faced from the outside. Even more dangerous and more destructive to the faithful were those problems the church faced 
from within. The false Christ that Jesus spoke of and other teachers of lies and heresies, they arose from the inside. They claimed to be champions of the gospel, but instead they were destroying it by undermining and obscuring the basic truths upon which the gospel rests. And with such false teachings, they did more than just betray their followers. They led them straight to hell. And so the faithful were continually under pressure, struggling just to stay alive while they tried to be the salt and the light to the world. And at the same time, constantly battling on another front to keep pure the truth of the gospel within the church. They learned through painful trials that Christ's kingdom here on earth always remains under the cross of suffering. They learned through the storms of conflict that they had to face how to hold on to the truth. And those who did hold on to their faith to the end, they have already received their crowns of glory in eternal life. These things we know. We know that the Christian church was built on the blood of martyrs and on the truths of the apostles and those that the early fathers tried so hard to maintain and retain. But it seems to us that many today think that that's all over, or at least it's just nothing more than an irrelevant historical fact. After all, our government today is not any more troublesome to Christianity than it is to any other religion that tries to stick by its beliefs. No one's likely to throw us to the lions. Many also think that all of the battles over doctrine have been fought and have been won. That we no longer have to concern ourselves about such things. That we can kick back and take it easy. Well, that may be the way we like it anyhow, but in our own little corner of the world, maybe it seems like it is. And so we're careful in our little midst not to rock the boat. We avoid conflict. With respect to the world, we keep our heads down. We circle our wagons and keep our Christian faith to ourselves. If a conflict with our culture arises or if we don't live in connection with the morality of the age, we compromise. We don't want to be dogmatic about anything. And so we bend. And if different teachings about the truths of Christ arise, well, it's best for us not to investigate those too thoroughly. Let's not ask any questions because that might lead to some arguments. Let's just focus on what we agree on and leave it at that. But when we or anyone else in Christ's church say that or even think such things, it becomes sweet music to the devil's ears. Why is that? Because those who think such way are not holding fast. They're just riding along. They're ready to be knocked overboard at the tiniest disturbance. They hang like ripe fruit, perhaps even rotten fruit from weak stems, just waiting to drop off into Satan's clutches. Jesus says in today's Gospel lesson that wars and natural disasters and persecutions will come from outside the church. Also that false teachers and teachers of lies will arise within the church, spreading confusion and conflict in their wakes. He teaches not only that these things will happen, but in fact they must happen. It's an imperative. It's necessary for the survival and the growth of the church. Now on the surface, that might not seem to make much sense. You may ask, well, how is it that people being led astray by false Christs or other misguided teachers can be a good thing? 
Surely that can't be what the Lord wants. And that much is true. The Lord does not want people to be led astray. But without false teachers out there trying to do their destructive work, even more people would be lost. How is that, you say? Well, think about it like this. Compare it to cleaning your house. You cannot clean it just once and never be troubled with it again, can you? While you're vacuuming one room, someone is making a mess or tracking dirt onto the carpet in another. The dust is always settling in the corners and on the shelves. Spiders are spinning webs up in the rafters. Dead flies and beetles are piling up in your windowsills. The dishes get used and accumulate on the drain board. And even while you're doing laundry, the clothes you're wearing and others in your family are wearing are getting continually dirty. And so it's a never-ending job. Likewise, it's a never-ending job within the church for our teaching and for the individual understanding of each Christian to keep it pure. You cannot learn it just once and be done with it. Because of our sinful natures, the rooms in our spiritual houses that we're not actively cleaning are always getting dirty. The false teachers and the heresies will show us where the trouble areas are. They're the muddy footprints on our soul's carpet, the dirty dishes stacked in the sink of our minds, and the plugged toilet of sewage that's spilling onto the floor of our souls. They tell us where we need to go. They tell us where we urgently need to get to work and to get back to the Word of God, to rediscover the truth about the issues of life. You see, without the false teachers in the world and the prowling lion of the devil, we would all become very lazy spiritual housekeepers. The house of our soul would become filthier and filthier over time until it got so bad that it was completely uninhabitable. The thing about false doctrine is that it keeps changing and it keeps getting updated, even as old heresies continue to surface time and time again. The only solution is that we have to stay in God's Word to keep up with it, so that we're able to identify it and resist it when we see it. And by means of the false teachers and their ever-changing new doctrines, Satan keeps updating his weapons that lead the, the unwary astray. And so, knowing this guides us back to God's faithful and truthful Word. There we can weigh and we can evaluate these supposedly new teachings in light of what God has said about it and what the church has confessed about it. And so false teachers, as destructive as they can be, are always inadvertently sending the faithful back to God. That is, they are sending us back to the Word, back to Christ. And so our grip on the saving truth is strengthened. But what about all that other stuff out there? The wars, the natural disasters, the persecutions that the church faces from the outside. Why do we need any of those? Well, I can think of several reasons, and here are just a few. One is that these problems are a constant reminder to us that this world in its present form is both under a curse and destined to pass away. We have no permanent home here, and so we ought to set our eternal hope on the home that we have with Christ above. That and only there is where we will find peace, security, and permanence. A second reason is that the trials and the hardships draw us closer to Christ and His Word in the same way that false teachers do. That is to say, we are much more likely to seek the comfort of God's Word and the wisdom of His promises when the chips are down, 
that's when our faith needs strengthening the most. When the winds of hardship and sorrow blow our way. A third reason is that such trials prove and purify true faith. Think about this. Think about the parable that Jesus told about the seeds that fell on different sorts of soil. Among them was the seed that fell on the rocky soil, where everything seemed just fine at first. It sprouted up and grew just fine for a while, but as soon as the sun got hot, that plant withered and died because its roots were not sunk deeply enough. And so it is with us. A lot of the faith that we think we have isn't really faith at all. It's in hardships that differences are proven. A fourth reason we could give is that the problems of the world give us an opportunity to show the love of Christ in action. Not just to one another here in the church as we support and we help each other in times of need as brothers and sisters in the faith, but also to those outside of the church. And that leads to a fifth and a final reason that it's ultimately good for us in the church to have to face hardship and persecution for the sake of Christ's name. It gives us an opportunity to boldly witness to the world about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You see, just about everybody out there is looking for something. Something that they can hold on to in this falling and decaying world. They want something that they can believe in. They want something that they can trust. They want something permanent, stable, and always true. Where can that be found except in Jesus Christ alone and in the forgiveness of sins and the eternal life that He gives? Most people out there don't know of Him yet. Maybe they've heard of Him and rejected Him. But by the way that we conduct ourselves, especially in times of conflict and trouble and persecution, that gives us the opportunity to have the potential to change hearts by giving a good witness to Christ. The quiet confidence that we display, the implicit trust that we have always that the Lord is with us and that He will see us through every difficulty, it raises questions in other minds. But the Spirit will give us the words that we need to speak, words that we can give as a reason for our hope, the hope that lies within us. Those hopes, just like everything else we have in the church, are rooted in the Word of God. And those words are powerful because His Word always causes a new reality. And by holding fast to Jesus at such times, we can help others do the same. In the wisdom of God, we in the church will both individually and collectively face many trials and conflicts while we are here on this earth. These are necessary. These serve the ultimate good both to ourselves and for our neighbors. And we should expect them because our Heavenly Father gives them to us in order to preserve, purify, and mature us in the saving faith we have in His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so in the face of fear, in the face of hardships, let us hold fast to Him and to His Word alone so that we too may wear crowns of glory with those who have endured till the end and were saved by faith in His name. In the name of Jesus. Amen.